0: Hello again, I'm Richard Figge, and this is for Reading Out Loud, so good to have you with me. Two seasonal stories tonight. One is a classic tale based on a medieval legend which may be new to you, the other surely familiar and which I hope you love as much as I do. Our Lady's Juggler is a religious miracle story by the French author Anatole France. It was published in 1892 and was based on an old medieval legend. Similar to the later Christmas carol, The Little Drummer Boy, it tells the story of a juggler turned monk who has no gift to offer a statue of the Virgin Mary except his ability to juggle well. Upon doing so, he is accused of blasphemy by the other monks, but then the miracle takes place. It was made into an opera by composer Jules Massenet in 1902, and it has been adapted as a radio play, and has furnished the basis for a number of film and television versions. Our Lady's Juggler by Anatole France In the days of King Louis there was a poor juggler in France, a native of Compiègne, Barnaby by name, who went about from town to town performing feats of skill and strength. On fair days he would unfold an old worn-out carpet in the public square, and when by means of a jovial address, which he had learned of a very ancient juggler, and which he never varied in the least, he had drawn together the children and loafers, he assumed extraordinary attitudes, and balanced a tin plate on the tip of his nose. At first the crowd would feign indifference. But when, supporting himself on his hands face downwards, he threw into the air six copper balls which glistened in the sunshine and caught them again with his feet, or when, throwing himself backwards until his heels and the nape of his neck met, giving his body the form of a perfect wheel, he would juggle in this posture with a dozen knives, a murmur of admiration would escape the spectators, and pieces of money rained down upon the carpet. Nevertheless, like the majority of those who live by their wits, Barnaby of Compiègne had a great struggle to make a living. Earning his bread by the sweat of his brow, he bore rather more than his share of the penalties consequent upon the misdoings of our father Adam. Again, he was unable to work as constantly as he would have been willing to do. The warmth of the sun and the broad daylight were as necessary to enable him to display his brilliant parts as to the trees if flower and fruit should be expected of them. In winter time, he was nothing more than a tree stripped of its leaves, and as it were, dead. The frozen ground was hard to the juggler, and, like the grasshopper of which Marie de France tells us, the inclement season caused him to suffer both cold and hunger, but as he was simple-natured, he bore his ills patiently. He never meditated on the origin of wealth, nor upon the inequality of human conditions. He believed firmly that if this life should prove hard— the life to come could not fail to redress the balance, and this hope upheld him. He did not resemble those thievish and miscreant Mary Andrews who sell their souls to the devil. He never blasphemed God's name. He lived uprightly, and although he had no wife of his own, he did not covet his neighbors, since woman is ever the enemy of the strong man, as it appears in the history of Samson recorded in the Scriptures. In truth, His was not a nature much disposed to carnal delights, and it was a greater deprivation to him to forsake the tankard than the maid who bore it, for whilst not wanting in sobriety he was fond of a drink when the weather waxed hot. He was a worthy man who feared God, and was very devoted to the Blessed Virgin. Never did he fail on entering a church to fall upon his knees before the image of the mother of God, and offer up this prayer to her. Blessed lady, keep watch over my life until it shall please God that I die, and when I am dead, ensure to me the possession of the joys of paradise. Now on a certain evening, after a dreary wet day, as Barnaby pursued his road, sad and bent, carrying under his arm his balls and knives wrapped up in his old carpet, on the watch for some barn where, though he might not sup, he might sleep, he perceived on the road, going in the same direction as himself, a monk, whom he saluted courteously, and as they walked at the same rate they fell into conversation with one another. fellow traveller, said the monk, "'how comes it about that you are clothed all in green? Is it perhaps in order to take the part of a jester in some mystery play?' "'Not at all, good father,' replied Barnaby. "'Such as you see me, I am called Barnaby,' and for my calling I am a juggler. There would be no pleasanter calling in the world if it would always provide one with daily bread. Friend Barnaby, returned the monk, be careful what you say. There is no calling more pleasant than the monastic life. Those who lead it are occupied with the praises of God, the Blessed Virgin, and the saints, and indeed the religious life is one ceaseless hymn to the Lord. Barnaby replied, "'Good father,' I own that I spoke like an ignorant man. Your calling cannot be in any respect compared to mine, and although there may be some merit in dancing with a penny balanced on a stick on the tip of one's nose, it is not a merit which comes within hail of your own. Gladly would I, like you, good father, sing my office day by day, and especially the office of the Most Holy Virgin, to whom I have devoured a singular devotion.' In order to embrace the monastic life, I would willingly abandon the art by which from Soissons to Beauvais I am well known in upwards of six hundred towns and villages. The monk was touched by the juggler's simplicity, and as he was not lacking in discernment, he at once recognized in Barnaby one of those men of whom it is said in the scriptures, Peace on earth to men of good will, and for this reason he replied, Friend Barnaby, come with me and I will have you admitted into the monastery of which I am prior. He who guided St. Mary of Egypt in the desert set me upon your path to lead you into the way of salvation. It was in this manner then that Barnaby became a monk. In the monastery into which he was received, the religious vied with one another in the worship of the Blessed Virgin, and in her honor each employed all the knowledge and all the skill which God had given him. The prior, on his part, wrote books, dealing, according to the rules of scholarship, with the virtues of the Mother of God. Brother Maurice, with a deft hand, copied out these treatises upon sheets of vellum. Brother Alexander adorned the leaves with delicate miniature paintings. Here were displayed the Queen of Heaven, seated upon Solomon's throne, and while four lions were on guard at her feet... Around the nimbus which encircled her head hovered seven doves, which are the seven gifts of the Holy Spirit namely, fear, piety, knowledge, strength, counsel, understanding, and wisdom. For her companions, she had six virgins with hair of gold namely, humility, prudence, seclusion, submission, virginity, and obedience. At her feet were two little naked figures, perfectly white, in an attitude of supplication. These were souls imploring her all-powerful intercession for their soul's health, and we may be sure not imploring in vain. Upon another page facing this, Brother Alexander represented Eve, so that the fall and the redemption could be perceived at one and the same time, Eve the wife abased, and Mary the virgin exalted. Furthermore, to the marvel of the beholder, this book contained presentments of the well of living waters, the fountain, the lily, the moon, the sun, and the garden enclosed, of which the Song of Songs tells us. The gate of heaven, and the city of God, and all these things were symbols of the Blessed Virgin. Brother Marbode was likewise one of the most loving children of Mary. He spent all his days "'carving images in stone, "'so that his beard, his eyebrows, and his hair "'were white with dust, "'and his eyes continually swollen and weeping. "'But his strength and cheerfulness were not diminished, "'although he was now well gone in years. "'And it was clear that the Queen of Paradise "'still cherished her servant in his old age. Marbod represented her seated upon a throne, "'her brow encircled with an orb-shaped nimbus set with pearls.' and he took care that the folds of her dress should cover the feet of her concerning whom the prophet declared my beloved is as a garden enclosed sometimes too he depicted her in the semblance of a child full of grace and appearing to say thou art my god even from my mother's womb in the priory moreover were poets who composed hymns in latin both in prose and verse, in honor of the Blessed Virgin Mary, and amongst the company was even a brother from Picardy, who sang the miracles of Our Lady in rhymed verse and in the vulgar tongue. Being a witness of this emulation in praise and the glorious harvest of their labors, Barnaby mourned his own ignorance and simplicity. "'Alas!' he sighed, as he took his solitary walk in the little shelterless garden of the monastery, wretched white that i am to be unable like my brothers worthily to praise the holy mother of god to whom i have vowed my whole heart's affection alas alas i am but a rough man and unskilled in the arts and i can render you in service blessed lady neither edifying sermons nor ingenious paintings nor statues truthfully sculptured nor verses whose march is measured to the beat of feet No gift have I, alas. After this fashion, he groaned and gave himself up to sorrow. But one evening, when the monks were spending their hour of liberty in conversation, he heard one of them tell the tale of a religious man who could repeat nothing other than the Ave Maria. This poor man was despised for his ignorance, but after his death there issued forth from his mouth five roses in honor of the five letters of the name Mary, Marie, and thus his sanctity was made manifest. Whilst he listened to this narrative, Barnaby marveled yet once again at the loving-kindness of the Virgin, but the lesson of that blessed death did not avail to console him, for his heart overflowed with zeal, and he longed to advance the glory of his Lady who is in heaven. How to compass this he sought, but could find no way, and day by day he became the more cast down. When one morning he awakened filled with joy, hastened to the chapel, and remained there alone for more than an hour. After dinner, he returned to the chapel once more. And starting from that moment, he repaired daily to the chapel at such hours as it was deserted, and spent within it a good part of the time which the other monks devoted to the liberal and mechanical arts. His sadness vanished nor did he any longer groan. A demeanor so strange awakened the curiosity of the monks. These began to ask one another for what purpose Brother Barnaby could be indulging so persistently in retreat. The prior, whose duty it is to let nothing escape him in the behavior of his children in religion, resolved to keep a watch over Barnaby during his withdrawals to the chapel. One day then, when he was shut up there after his custom, the prior, accompanied by two of the older monks, went to discover through the chinks in the door what was going on within the chapel. They saw Barnaby before the altar of the Blessed Virgin, head downwards, with his feet in the air, and he was juggling with six balls of copper and a dozen knives. In honor of the Holy Mother of God he was performing those feats which aforetime had won him most renown. Not recognizing that the simple fellow was thus placing at the service of the Blessed Virgin his knowledge and skill, the two old monks exclaimed against the sacrilege. The prior was aware how stainless was Barnaby's soul, but he concluded that he had been seized with madness. They were all three preparing to lead him swiftly from the chapel when they saw the Blessed Virgin descend the steps of the altar, and advance to wipe away with a fold of her azure robe the sweat which was dropping from her juggler's forehead. Then the prior, falling upon his face upon the pavement, uttered these words, Blessed are the simple-hearted, for they shall see God. Amen, responded the old brethren, and kissed the ground. Around the turn of the twentieth century, Joseph Pulitzer's newspaper, The New York World, made a contract with a writer by the name of William Sidney Porter, better known as O. Henry. By the terms of the contract, he would be paid the then princely sum of $100 a week to produce stories for the paper's Sunday magazine section. In 1902, he promised a Christmas story, and he couldn't do it and his editor got nervous, and he finally went to Porter's apartment, and he said, "'We've got to have the story,' and Porter said, "'Well, I don't have an idea.' The editor said, "'Come with me,' and he took Porter to his favorite saloon, called Pete's Tavern, on East 18th Street in New York City, and he sat him down in his favorite booth, and he said, "'You're not leaving here until the story is finished,' and Porter knew he meant it, and in four hours he he wrote his most famous story, The Gift of the Magi. One dollar and eighty-seven cents. That was all. And sixty cents of it was in pennies. Pennies saved one and two at a time by bulldozing the grocer and the vegetable man and the butcher until one's cheeks burned with the silent imputation of parsimony that such close dealing implied. Three times Della counted it, one dollar and eighty-seven cents, and the next day would be Christmas. There was clearly nothing to do but flop down on the shabby little couch and howl, so Della did it, which instigates the moral reflection that life is made up of sobs, sniffles, and smiles, with sniffles predominating. While the mistress of the house is gradually subsiding from the first stage to the second, take a look at the home. A furnished flat at eight dollars per week. It did not exactly beggar description, but it certainly had that word on the lookout for the mendicancy squad. In the vestibule below was a letter-box into which no letter would go, and an electric button from which no mortal finger could coax a ring, and appertaining thereunto was a card bearing the name Mr. James Dillingham Young." The Dillingham had been flung to the breeze during a former period of prosperity when its possessor was being paid thirty dollars per week. Now, when the income was shrunk to twenty dollars, though, they were thinking seriously of contracting to a modest and unassuming D. But whenever Mr. James Dillingham Young came home and reached his flat above, he was called Jim, and greatly hugged by Mrs. James Dillingham Young, already introduced to you as Della, which is all very good. Della finished her cry and attended to her cheeks with the powder rag. She stood by the window and looked out dully at a gray cat walking a gray fence in a gray backyard. Tomorrow would be Christmas Day, and she had only one dollar and eighty-seven cents with which to buy Jim a present. She had been saving every penny she could for months, with this result Twenty dollars a week doesn't go far. Expenses had been greater than she had calculated. They always are. Only one dollar and eighty-seven cents to buy a present for Jim. Her Jim. Many a happy hour she had spent planning for something nice for him. Something fine and rare and sterling. Something just a little bit near to being worthy of the honor of being owned by Jim. There was a pier glass between the windows of the room. "'Perhaps you have seen a pier-glass in an eight-dollar flat. "'A very thin and very agile person may, "'by observing his reflection in a rapid sequence "'of longitudinal strips, "'obtain a fairly accurate conception of his looks. "'Della, being slender, had mastered the art. "'Suddenly she whirled from the window "'and stood before the glass. "'Her eyes were shining brilliantly, "'but her face had lost its color within twenty seconds.' Rapidly she pulled down her hair and let it fall to its full length. Now, there were two possessions of the James Dillingham Youngs in which they both took a mighty pride. One was Jim's gold watch that had been his father's and his grandfather's. The other was Della's hair." it reached below her knee and made itself almost a garment for her, and then she did it up again nervously and quickly. Once she faltered for a minute and stood still while a tear or two splashed on the worn red carpet. On went her old brown jacket, on went her old brown hat. With a whirl of skirts and with the brilliant sparkle still in her eyes, she fluttered out the door and down the stairs to the street." Where she stopped, the sign read, Madame Sophronie, hair goods of all kinds. One flight up, Della ran and collected herself, panting. Madame, large, too white, chilly, hardly looked the Sophronie. Will you buy my hair? asked Della. I buy hair, said Madame. Take your hat off and let's have a sight at the looks of it. Down rippled the brown cascade. Twenty dollars said madame, lifting the mass with a practiced hand. "'Give it to me quick,' said Della. "'Oh, and the next two hours tripped by on rosy wings!' (laughs) Forget the hashed metaphor. She was ransacking the stores for Jim's present. She found it at last. It surely had been made for Jim and no one else. There was no other like it in any of the stores, and she had turned all of them inside out.' It was a platinum fob chain, simple and chaste in design, properly proclaiming its value by substance alone and not by meretricious ornamentation, as all good things should do. It was even worthy of the watch. As soon as she saw it she knew that it must be Jim's. It was like him, quietness and value. The description applied to both. Twenty-one dollars they took from her for it— and she hurried home with the eighty-seven cents. With that chain on his watch, Jim might be properly anxious about the time in any company. Grand as the watch was, he sometimes looked at it on the sly, on account of the old leather strap that he used in place of a chain. When Della reached home, her intoxication gave way a little to prudence and reason. She got out her curling irons and lighted the gas and went to work repairing the ravages made by generosity added to love, which is always a tremendous task, dear friends, a mammoth task. Within forty minutes her head was covered with tiny, close lying curls that made her look wonderfully like a truant schoolboy. She looked at her reflection in the mirror long, carefully, and critically. "If Jim doesn't kill me," she said to herself. Before he takes a second look at me, he'll say I look like a Coney Island chorus girl. But what could I do? Oh, what could I do with a dollar and eighty-seven cents? At seven o'clock the coffee was made, and the frying pan was on the back of the stove, hot and ready to cook the chops. Jim was never late. Della doubled the fob chain in her hand, and sat on the corner of the table near the door that he always entered then she heard his step on the stair away down on the first flight, and she turned white for just a moment. She had a habit of saying a little silent prayer about the simplest everyday things, and now she whispered, Please, God, make him think I'm still pretty. The door opened, and Jim stepped in and closed it. He looked thin and very serious. Poor fellow, he was only twenty-two, and to be burdened with a family— He needed a new overcoat, and he was without gloves. Jim stepped inside the door, as immovable as a setter at the scent of quail. His eyes were fixed upon Della, and there was an expression in them that she could not read, and it terrified her. It was not anger, nor surprise, nor disapproval, nor horror, nor any of the sentiments that she had been prepared for. He simply stared at her fixedly, with that peculiar expression on his face. Della wriggled off the table and went for him. "'Jim, darling,' she cried, "'don't look at me that way. I had my hair cut off and sold because I couldn't have lived through Christmas without giving you a present. It'll grow out again. You won't mind, will you? I just had to do it. My hair grows awfully fast. Say Merry Christmas, Jim, and let's be happy. You don't know what a nice, what a beautiful, nice present I've got for you.' "'You've cut off your hair?' asked Jim laboriously, as if he had not arrived at that patent fact yet, even after the hardest mental labor. "'Cut it off and sold it,' said Della. "'Don't you like me just as well, anyhow? I'm me without my hair, ain't I?' Jim looked about the room curiously. "'You say your hair is gone?' he said, with an air almost of idiocy. You needn't look for it, said Della. It's sold, I tell you, sold and gone. It's Christmas Eve, boy. Be good to me, for it went for you. Maybe the hairs of my head were numbered, she went on with sudden serious sweetness, but nobody could ever count my love for you. Shall I put the chops on, Jim? Out of his trance Jim seemed quickly to wake. He enfolded his Della, For ten seconds, let us regard with discreet scrutiny some inconsequential object in the other direction. Eight dollars a week or a million a year, what is the difference? A mathematician or a wit would give you the wrong answer. The magi brought valuable gifts, but that was not among them. This dark assertion will be illuminated later on. Jim drew a package from his overcoat pocket and threw it upon the table. Don't make any mistake, Dell," he said, about me. I don't think there's anything in the world in the way of a haircut or a shave or a shampoo that could make me like my girl any less. But if you'll unwrap that package, you may see why you had me going a while at first. White fingers and nimble tore at the string and paper, and then an ecstatic scream of joy, and then, alas, a quick change to hysterical tears and wails, necessitating the immediate employment of all the comforting powers of the lord of the flat. For there lay the combs, the set of combs, side and back, that Della had worshipped long in a Broadway window. Beautiful combs, pure tortoise shell with jewelled rims, just the shade to wear in the beautiful vanished hair. They were expensive combs, she knew— and her heart had simply craved and yearned over them without the least hope of possession. And now they were hers, but the tresses that should have adorned the coveted adornments were gone. But she hugged them to her bosom, and at length she was able to look up with dim eyes and a smile and say, My hair grows so fast, Jim. And then Della leaped up like a little singed cat and cried, Oh! Oh! Jim had not yet seen his beautiful present. She held it out to him eagerly upon her open palm. The dull, precious metal seemed to flash with a reflection of her bright and ardent spirit. "'Isn't it a dandy, Jim? I hunted all over town to find it. You'll have to look at the time a hundred times a day now. Give me your watch. I want to see how it looks on it.' Instead of obeying, Jim tumbled down on the couch AND PUT HIS HANDS UNDER THE BACK OF HIS HEAD, AND SMILED. DELL, SAID HE, LET'S PUT OUR CHRISTMAS PRESENTS AWAY AND KEEP THEM A WHILE. THEY'RE TOO NICE TO USE JUST AT PRESENT. I SOLD THE WATCH TO GET THE MONEY FOR YOUR COMBS. AND NOW, SUPPOSE YOU PUT THE CHOPS ON. THE MAGI, AS YOU KNOW, WERE WISE MEN, WONDERFULLY WISE MEN, who brought gifts to the babe in the manger. They invented the art of giving Christmas presents. Being wise, their gifts were no doubt wise ones, possibly bearing the privilege of exchange in case of duplication. And here I have lamely related to you the uneventful chronicle of two foolish children in a flat, who most unwisely sacrificed for each other the greatest treasures of their house.' But in a last word to the wise of these days, let it be said that of all who give gifts, these two were the wisest. Of all who give and receive gifts, such as they are wisest. Everywhere they are wisest. They are the Magi. You've been listening to Our Lady's Juggler by Anatole France and The Gift of the Magi by O. Henry. Theme music by Esther Garcia. I'm Richard Figgy, and this has been for Reading Out Loud. I wish you joy at Christmas and hope you will join me again next week. In the meantime, may your days be merry and bright. Be well, be happy, stay safe. All the best.